Uh, We're up to the last few chapters of Revelation and the final vision, the seventh vision. Uh, If you recall, there are, at least the way we've been working our way through the book, uh, seven visions of seven in the book. We saw the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven symbolic figures in history, the seven, anyone remember the next? The seven bowls and finally the seven songs of woe over fallen Babylon. At the end of that sixth vision, chapters 17 and 18, we ended on a very sombre night. We witnessed the funeral service for that great prostitute Babylon, which we saw was depicting Jerusalem, Israel, who had rejected their Messiah. She was once described as that glorious woman clothed in the sun, crowned with stars, with the moon under her feet, but instead she'd become that gaudy prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast in this unholy marriage with the political and religious powers of Rome and the world. Babylon is a symbol of human beings in organised, sophisticated rebellion against God and his purposes. And the tragedy of that vision was that Israel was no longer oppressed by Babylon. She had become Babylon in her refusal to believe in her Messiah, Jesus. So chapter 18 was the point where we hit rock bottom, so to speak. There's no lower place to go than when God's chosen people for 2,000 years at the point of the fulfilment of all of God's promises reject them and nullify them all. That's what we saw in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, predicted by Jesus in Matthew 24. The old covenant age was finished because salvation can now be found nowhere else but in the crucified, risen, reigning Jesus. Now, I I believe, I may be proven wrong in the future, but I believe that the temple in Jerusalem will never be rebuilt again. Jesus' predictions, if you read them, are so conclusive and so final. And the New Testament is crystal clear that its structure and its systems was all made obsolete by Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. And at the time of the New Testament was, in the words of Hebrews 8.13, was obsolete, growing old and ready to vanish away. But as the saying goes, if you've hit rock bottom, the only direction you can go is up. And that's the direction that the rest of Revelation takes us. Between verses 4 and 5, there's a change of view. The closing hymn in the funeral service of Babylon finished with the words, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And that's the last that we hear of Babylon. Then a new song begins in verse 5, a call to praise God, not for what's past, but for what is ahead. This call to worship comes from the throne. It's the voice of Jesus, the Lamb who is seated on the throne at the right hand of his Father. And notice how he speaks of God, our God. Jesus, being fully divine, has every right to demand that we worship him as God, but he hasn't come to lay hold of glory for himself. He does all things to the glory of the Father. By coming to us as one of us, he now speaks to us not only as the eternal Son, but also as the last Adam. And as he said to the women at the entrance to the tomb that he just vacated, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. As our great High Priest, Jesus now leads us in worship to the Father, calling us to bring glory to the Father, just as he has and does. None of us can really lead worship, in at least true worship of the Father in, the spirit, uh, in spirit and truth. Jesus is our only worship leader. In uh, worldly forms of worship, the worship leader generally needs to rev people up to uh, use clever techniques and the worship needs a rock concert feel to draw people in, to give them an experience and very often it can end up being a case of crowd manipulation than anything else. Well, Jesus, our worship leader, doesn't need to use hype or manipulation because his word of authority is powerful enough to grab our attention. Our worship isn't an emotional reaction to a feeling or a vibe. It's an action of obedience to the one who is our Lord and King. He makes known to us the glory of God, God who is worthy of all honour and praise and thanks. And worship is an expression of affection then towards this God who is our God, who is our Father. Romans 12.2 describes worship as reasonable or logical. doesn't mean that it's just an intellectual thing, but that worship is the only logical, the only reasonable response to seeing the mercies of God in Jesus. How can you not worship when you've seen all of his goodness given to you? Now, if you can remember back to five months ago, I don't expect you to, at Easter time we were in chapters four and five and we saw there a series of songs radiating out from the throne of God, starting with the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and then eventually every creature in heaven and on earth worshipping. So this worship began with praise for 
God for who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Then, praising him for his powerful acts in creation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then, after the Lamb had approached the throne and taken the scroll from the Father's hand, the worship was praising him for his mighty acts in salvation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These are the first three themes that should shape our worship. God's holiness, God's acts of creation and his acts of salvation. But I say the first three because there's one more to round them off. His acts in consummation, in bringing everything together in perfect completion. And that's what we begin to see here. Now there's a popular misconception about the book of Revelation that it's all about the future, all about the end of the end times just before Jesus returns. And I hope you've been seeing as we've been journeying through this book that so far it's actually been mainly about the present with occasional glimpses of the future. It was entirely relevant for its original readers in the first century. And it's been just as relevant for Christians throughout church history, right up to now. Because it's about how Jesus reigns now from the right hand of the Father and is at work now to build his church. But while up to this point, that that's been the focus of the book, as I said, now the shift starts to look at the future, the certain, the sure hope that we have for the future of humanity and for creation. Christian faith is always forward-looking. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some have said that means faith is blind, that it's believing in something for which there's no evidence. But it's the assurance of things hoped for, things that we do not yet see simply because they haven't yet arrived. But they're nevertheless guaranteed. We have the down payment, we have the deposit of our inheritance in the Holy Spirit who has come and has poured the love of the Father into our hearts, shown us all that Jesus has done in justifying us and giving us peace with the Father. When you turn onto the southeastern freeway and you see this sign saying Murray Bridge, 69 kilometres, do you say... I'm not sure if this road's going to take me to Murray Bridge. No, you can drive on 
with confident faith because you know that that sign isn't wishful thinking. You know that the road that you're on was built for the express purpose of getting you to Murray Bridge. And so knowing that you're on the right road to your destination means you can put your car in cruise control and sit back and relax. But of course you know that the journey isn't the destination. There's a goodness in knowing you're on the right road, but you don't see that as an end in itself. There's a goal to your driving, and that goal will be fulfilled once you arrive in Murray Bridge. So the goodness of our journey is just a foretaste of the all-surpassing goodness of our destination. And it's much better than Murray Bridge, I'll tell you that. Murray Bridge is a lovely town. Peter tells us, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So at this point in Revelation, we're given a look into the future to get a sense of what it will be like when we reach this outcome of our faith. See how this song that the great multitude sings is set in that future time when the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. That'll be our focus on that day when we stand before the throne amongst our brothers and sisters from every people, tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus will come to collect his bride. We, his bride, will be ready. And see how that will happen. We're told it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What this bride wears is both a gift to her from her bridegroom and something that she must put on herself. In other places in Revelation, when people appear in a white linen, it symbolises the perfect righteousness of Christ, given freely as a gift, because he has borne our sin on the cross, because he's justified us before God. But here the emphasis is on the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the gift of our justification being worked out to produce the fruit of faith. John Calvin said, We're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Real, living, justifying faith will always evidence itself in just or righteous living. If we love Jesus, we will obey his commands. If we love God with all of our being, we will also love our neighbour as ourselves. So the free gift of Jesus' righteousness flows out into righteous deeds. And these deeds of the saints are the wedding gown that makes the bride beautiful. Now this isn't a statement about your personal salvation. Righteous deeds will not save you. 
because this song isn't about us personally, individually, it's about us together as the church. We're not lone rangers going off doing our righteous deeds on our own because we're the members of the body of Christ. Everything we do, righteous or unrighteous, has an impact on the church. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6 Paul says that if a Christian man goes off and sees a prostitute, then he is taking the members of Christ and making them members of a prostitute. So he not only dishonours his wife and his family, but he also dishonours the church of which he's a member in Christ. But here we see the opposite is also true. As we go out, as we serve, as we love, as we proclaim in the name of Jesus, we do so as a member of his body and so our righteous deeds, even those done in secret, so only the Father sees them, they're all contributing to the beautiful, bright and pure wedding gown of Jesus' bride. Now, of course, on that day, when we worship before the throne, we won't be taking credit for what we've done. We'll be saying it was granted to her, given to her. Even our righteous deeds are a gift from God because they're the works that he's created us for and already planned for us to walk in. But what a privilege that is. We can take no credit or glory for what we do yet the Father looks at us and rewards us anyway. The pure linen of the bride has been given to her by her bridegroom, but he's delighted to see her beauty and he's pleased to take her to be one with himself. All is grace and how great and glorious that grace is. Now after this song, the angel then turns to John and says something a little odd. Write this. Why it's odd is that up to this point, John's already been writing down everything that he's seen as Jesus instructed him way back in chapter 1. But it's as if the angel is saying, you need to make sure that you don't miss this because what I'm about to say is so important and sums up everything that you have seen so far. And just to make sure that John realises the importance of this, even though he knows he's been writing the words of Jesus, the angel says, these are the true words of God. If you forget anything that we've heard so far from this book, make sure you remember these words. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you do, then you'll be enabled to remember the essential message of Revelation. All of the threads of this book converge in this statement. It's so full of meaning and significance. And I'm going to work through it phrase by phrase. Firstly, blessed are those. Now we heard that phrase two weeks ago, didn't we? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Naveen told us that to be blessed 
is to be happy beyond measure with a deep-seated joy that nothing can take away, not because we've pursued happiness, but because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. I said at Pohar's funeral a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at Revelation 14, 17, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. That to be blessed means knowing that the fullness of God's goodness has been bestowed upon us. It was the heart longing of every Jew and should be of every person to know the blessedness of God. So Psalm 1 is the paradigm for anyone who wants to live in their true, full, authentic humanity. And this verse tells us that this blessedness comes from having our name on the guest list of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Secondly, blessed are those who are invited to. This word invited is literally called and it has a stronger sense of how we think about invitations today. Uh, Today if we receive an invitation from a friend or an acquaintance to a party or an event, uh, we might check our diary to see if we're free or to see if there's something we would rather go to instead. But God's call is not an optional thing. It's a summons because it is the invitation from the king. If you were invited to a royal wedding, would you say, let me check my diary, I think I might be getting my hair done on that day, may not be able to make it. You'd see it as a solemn duty as a citizen, but also an incredible privilege that you have been called to be an honoured guest. Now, Jesus told a parable about this very scenario. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called 
but few are chosen. See how there were three types of people in this parable. There are those to whom the invitation was sent at first, but who ignored it or rejected it. This is the Jews, Jesus' own people to whom he came, but who did not receive him. So judgment comes upon them, as we saw in chapter 18. Then the invitation goes out to the main roads, meaning to the ends of the earth, so that the wedding hall is then filled with people from all nations. There's the second type of person. And then there's the third, this man who is presumed to come to the wedding but isn't wearing the right clothes. Now in those days, if you were a wedding guest, especially at royal weddings, you were provided a plain robe to wear so that all the guests would be equal. You couldn't come in your fancy clothes to advertise your high status in society because the wedding isn't about you. It's about the king and his son and his bride. So this man has presumed to respond to this invitation, but he presumes to be there on his own merits, in his own clothes, rather than receive the free gift of the wedding garment from the king. Then Jesus gives the teaching point of this parable. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now this is what theologians describe as the general call and the effectual call. The general call goes out to all people in three ways. Through creation, in which people are called to acknowledge and give thanks to God as their creator. It goes out through our consciences, our knowledge of right and wrong, in which we're called to acknowledge that we are morally accountable to God as our judge. And it goes out through the preaching of the gospel, in which we're called to come in repentance and faith in Jesus as our saviour. This general call means that no one has an excuse for not knowing about the wedding feast or not responding, not saying, I didn't know I was invited. But the efficient call is when the Holy Spirit does a specific work in us. Through hearing the gospel, he softens our hearts, he opens our eyes to see Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord, He opens our ears to hear his word and to know that it is his word and he enables us by his power, not our own, to come to Jesus and to trust him as our creator and judge and saviour. Now here in Revelation 19, it's this effectual call that's being spoken of. What blessedness it is to not only have received the invitation to come into the Father's kingdom and family through Jesus, but then to have the Holy Spirit change our hard hearts and make us willingly and joyfully 
able to answer the call and to come. Thirdly, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. Now in the first century Jewish weddings, the supper was the high point and the completion of the whole marriage process. The betrothal would happen months or maybe even years in advance. There would be a time of preparation as the groom prepared a place in his father's house, a room where he and his bride eventually would come to live. The bride would be preparing herself with the help of of her bridesmaids who would then wait with her on the day that the the groom's father had announced the wedding would take place. Not even the son knew the date of the wedding. It was all the father's choice. Then the bridegroom would come and collect his bride from her house and take her back to to his father's house where the supper was prepared. But the supper wouldn't start until, after all of the ceremonies, the groom and his bride would go into the room and consummate their marriage. It was only when they had emerged from their room, maybe a bit sheepishly, then the supper would begin with feasting and dancing and celebration that would go on maybe for for days. So the invitation is to be there on the great day when the father says everything is finished, everything is good, my son is married, the marriage has been consummated. This is no second rate event. This is not something that's just preliminary to the main event. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a feast and a celebration that will continue not just for a few days but into eternity with fullness of joy and thanksgiving as we the bride see our bridegroom face to face and he gives to us all that he has and all that he is. Fourthly, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not described as the marriage of the King or the marriage of the Son of Man, but of the Lamb. Many ancient royal weddings were simply political arrangements, part of treaties, which is why the kings would have so many wives. But this isn't a political arrangement. It's not a marriage of convenience. We sang this morning, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. This is the bridegroom who has laid down his life in order to redeem his bride. It's a standard that us human men are called to but which we'll always fail at. But Jesus has not failed in his duty. He is the lamb who died for the sin of his people. He's borne our guilt and our shame in himself. Everything that we, the bride, were has become his. For eternity he'll carry in his scars 
in his body the scars as a perpetual reminder that he became a curse for us so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. All that we are and have became his at the cross and all that he has and is has become ours. His resurrection life is what gives us eternal life. His father is our father. The spirit that dwells in him now dwells in us. Think about this amazing grace. The eternal trying God who doesn't need us, he has no obligation to do anything for us, he chose to create us in his image knowing that we would sin against him but he also chose to become one of us, to bear the scars of our sin for eternity. The Son of God forever will also be the Lamb who was slain. And maybe we can hear this so often that it becomes run of the mill for us. But John's response to these words, this single sentence, tells us a lot. Now he's told off for falling down to worship the angel, and rightly so. But it's the object of his worship, not the act of worship, that's wrong. John clearly saw how great and how glorious this single sentence is and how much of the true words of God are contained in it. We've only given it a cursory glance this morning. After all that he had seen throughout this book so far, it's this phrase that causes him to fall down because he saw in it the full glory of God. I like to think that he, maybe he thought, this person that I thought was an angel, maybe this is Jesus and that's why he fell down. But he saw the glory of God and how could he not worship? So how will you respond to the glory of God that's been made known to you in this short passage this morning. Will you pass it by? Will you tick the box of having heard another sermon on another Sunday in church? Or will you hear the angels call? Worship God. Will you hear this as just another reason to sit comfortably in your own knowledge of your salvation? Or will you hear the call to stand up, to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit to do those righteous deeds that are part of the beauty of the bride's gown? Our bridegroom is coming, so let's make ourselves ready. Let's pray.